I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. I'll start today's show with a big confession. I have been west of the Mississippi River a handful of times. I have never seen the great sights of the American West. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Great Redwoods. Most of all, I'd like to see Yellowstone. The sheer size of Yellowstone and the wonder of the geysers makes it a magical place. Friends that I know that went there as kids camping on holidays always seem to have the best vacation stories when they came home. And this year, 2022, is the 150th anniversary of the park's creation. In 1872, it became the first national interstate park, and the story of its preservation will fascinate listeners of the show. It's probably a little familiar. It's a Gilded Age tale of railroad expansion, Native American dispossession, and exploration. But what you might be surprised to learn is some of the things that Megan Kate Nelson explores in her latest book, Saving Yellowstone. It's one of these books that you find hard to put down because the narrative is rich and textured, the characters are relatable, and the setting is iconic, whether you've been there or not. Dr. Megan Kate Nelson is a writer and historian of some renown. She's the author of The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native American Peoples in the Fight for the West, which came out in 2020, and it was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. In 2012, she published Ruin Nation, Destruction and the American Civil War, and before that, in 2019, Trembling Earth, a Cultural History of the Okefenokee Swamp. So it's fair to say that few others have captured the environmental story of America in the antebellum and Civil War years like she has. I also have it on good authority that she's a cocktail aficionado, but I forgot to ask her what her favorite cocktail is. So we'll have to have another interview sometime later on when she gets her fifth book out. In the meantime, we're here to talk about Yellowstone. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Megan Nelson. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. It's great to be here. Well, I, I've, I'm going to make a confession that I've never been to Yellowstone, but I feel like in some ways I have now, thank, thankfully. Uh, I just... <laughs> My big wonder was why Yellowstone? I mean, I know you're a historian of the period when it becomes a state park or national park, but why? What excited you about it? Well, I mean, maybe we'll talk about this too in terms of writing books and how you come up with book ideas a little later in the podcast, but, and I'm not sure how you come up with your ideas. Um, 
I, you know, some people have big lists of all the books that they want to write, you know, and it's like 50 ideas long. Um, I am sadly not one of those people. I wish I were, uh, but I usually come up with or discover my next book project while I'm writing or kind of close to finishing the previous project. So when I was writing Three Cornered War, uh, there's a protagonist in that book, John Clark, who is the surveyor of New Mexico territory. And so I was doing background research and surveying in America and the history of that. And I ran into, uh, again, the great surveys of the 1860s and the Hayden survey uh, of 1871 of Yellowstone, which I had actually studied before in grad school in an art history class with Joni Kinsey at the University of Iowa, uh, because that... Uh, that survey, along with a couple others, but specifically that one produced just amazing artworks, um, photographs by William Henry Jackson, and then of course, uh, watercolors and, and big paintings um, by Thomas Moran. And, uh, and Joni was a, is, still is a scholar of Moran, so we really focused on that survey. So I ran into it again, and, and this was about probably 2018. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's the 150th anniversary of that survey, which led to the passage of the Yellowstone Act in 1872. Uh, you know, that, that anniversary is coming up. And, you know, this is a good reason to write about historical topics. You know, these, these anniversary moments are a kind of moment of reckoning where you consider kind of what, what happened to create this moment or this place, how did it enter the American imagination, and why is it important now? Um, so that was kind of the first move. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, this is, this is happening in 1871-72, like right in the middle of Reconstruction. And that realization, and I'm not sure why, it sort of blew me away. And so, so many people have written about Yellowstone. There's so many good books out there on conservation and wildlife biology and national park history, but no one had written about it as a reconstruction project about the creation, the exploration and preservation of Yellowstone as a national reconstruction project. And the minute I figured that out, then I knew I really wanted to write the book uh, in this way because in Three Cornered War, you know, I had, I had looked at the Civil War from a very unexpected place. And so I thought, well, what if I looked at reconstruction from an unexpected place like Yellowstone? Um, what could that reveal to us that we had maybe not known before. Great starting point. And I think the leading characters, you, you mentioned Ferdinand uh, Hayden, but you've got also Jay Cook and Sitting Bull as kind of the three, the, you know, the, the top three characters that you cover the most. I mean, I, I get why you did Hayden because that, that was your sort of resource base and you had this inspiration moment. Jay Cook and Sitting Bull, what made you decide to put them in and, and what did they do to the whole calculus of the, the narrative? Yeah, I mean, the, the choices that we make about who we highlight are really, really important, right? And um, of course, Hayden was going to be the central protagonist, you know, because he's the one. It also allowed me to narrate that expedition, which was was actually really fun to do uh, in the middle of a pandemic. You said that, you know, the book kind of transported you to Yellowstone. It did the same for me uh, while I was stuck at home. Um, originally, I had proposed a book with five major protagonists that uh, did not include Sitting Bull originally, uh, did include Ulysses S. Grant uh, and Spencer Baird, who was the Assistant Secretary of the Smithsonian 
at the time, and J.G. Holland, who was the uh, founder of Scribner's Monthly. Um, so originally, uh, it had uh, Hayden Cook, Grant, Holland, and, and Baird. Uh, so that's how I proposed the book. And my editor was like, that's a lot of white guys like in this <laughs> story. Don't tell me that, because I have a book that I want to pitch, which has got 30 white guys in it. And well, I don't 30 white guys. I know. Well, <laughs> You know, and some of it is inescapable. I mean, these are the worlds of men in this period, right? Exploration teams, entirely male. Congress, entirely male. Uh, investment banking, entirely male. Um, and even, you know, the science at this moment was mostly men. Um, and the Smithsonian Institution, of course, staffed almost entirely. Also, so um, so that was a little bit of a bummer. I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> And, 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 you know, there are women in the book and there are women who are very important uh, to the protagonists in the book who kind of shape some of their ideas. Um, but then I started, when my editor asked me that question, I started reading around and I was like, wait a minute, you know, this is the moment when Sitting Bull emerges uh, really fully into the American imagination. And then also as a, a very prominent leader, not only of the Hunkpapa Lakota, but of uh, the Lakota and their Cheyenne and Arapaho allies. He starts to build a coalition uh, to defend their homelands against a variety of threats uh, on the parts of railroads, U.S. soldiers, the federal government. So I thought that was really interesting. And I had, <clears throat> I had sort of run into him already because of Cook, uh, because, uh, you know, Cook is trying to build the, the Northern Pacific Railroad uh, just north of Yellowstone and right through the heart of Lakota homelands. And so um, ultimately I, I, I jettisoned Holland uh, and Baird. Uh, Holland appears, I think once in the book and Baird is a little uh, bigger presence. And, and Grant actually kind of stuck in as a fourth protagonist for a long time before I figured out that he just needed to kind of take a step back <laughs> and become more of a, a figure of context in the book, but I thought that the Hayden Cook Sitting Bull Triumvirate was actually a very interesting way of interweaving three different narratives um, of both the West, West, US Western history and reconstruction, the sort of exploration scientific narrative, the kind of capital investment and expansion narrative, and then also indigenous presence and persist persistence narrative. Uh, and so that was how I conceptualized the project and, and those three different viewpoints and kind of three different men who actually had some, some things in common, uh, but they're all staking their claims in Yellowstone Basin and the Yellowstone Valley kind of at this moment. Based on the way you work, that means that you have characters left over for the next book that you can then, you can pick up immediately where you <laughs> left off in a sense. Um, all right. Well, look, let's let's talk about each one of them in a little bit more depth or at least um, the communities that they represent and the themes of, during the re reconstruction period that they represent. So Hayden's survey of Yellowstone is something that strikes strikes me as the foundation of conservation in some ways. And I know that, as you said, there's been others that have talked about Gifford Pinchot or other conservationists mm -hmm. that are you know, critically important. But Hayden seems like you know, his work is really foundational. What's the legacy of his research? Well, you know, Hayden is such an interesting figure because he is a geologist. So, and this was one of the major scientific areas of research in this period where scientists are trying to figure out how old the earth is uh, and how it formed the way that it formed. And, but Hayden was also unusual because most 
scientists and the kind of core of the scientific community, which was based um, out of Philadelphia, kind of in this period, uh, were, pre were pretty much elites. You know, they were men with means, uh, they had been well-educated, and Hayden was this kind of hard scrabble guy. He grew up in poverty. He was a child of divorce. Uh, he was very smart, very quick, very kind of obviously smart. And his family did manage to send him to Oberlin uh, for school. And it was there that he really started to, to discover his love for science and really also for geology, especially the component of it, which involves fossil hunting. So he was the kind of scientist who loved to be out in the field. And so this is a part of scientific uh, study uh, that is really essential in this moment that these, and they're almost all men, and they're kind of fanning out into the landscape all across the United States, uh, gathering specimens of all kinds, uh, you know, birds and plant life and animals and bones and, and all kinds of things, including minerals, uh, but then also fossils, which were the real key uh, to establishing a timeline for the Earth's evolution. Uh, and Hayden, and it sounds weird to say this, that you would have a talent for fossil hunting, but but he really did. He was, he was able to, to gather specimens very quickly he always moved very quickly. This is something that everyone talked about, about him, that he was always walking fast. He was always talking fast. Uh, and a lot of people found him extremely obnoxious uh, because he was very ambitious, you know, talked a mile a minute, uh, you know, was not shy about bragging on his accomplishments. Um, and he could look at a granite outcropping or any kind of uh, area in the landscape and not only spot fossils, but immediately understand how important they were. Um, and he found a lot of rare specimens in his early fossil hunting in the 1850s. He thought he could perhaps build a career on this, although, you know, he would get funding partly uh, through the help of the Smithsonian Institution and Spencer Baird, who became his mentor. Um, and then he would come back and he would sell these fossils to collectors. So this, this is how he was making money early on, but it was not a lot of money. So he would hire on to explorations, to expeditions and surveys, which were mostly military led during the 1840s and 50s. And you know, the US government had, had always put money and power behind surveys, really starting with Lewis and Clark uh, in 1804 to six. Um, and Hayden really kind of joined in, uh, in in these government surveys at a, at a really pivotal moment when they're growing stronger and more extensive. Uh, they're starting to explore the regions that the United States had gained uh, by conquest and warfare uh, in the West from the Pacific to the, the Mississippi River. Um, and then he started to really conceive for himself a position as a leader of surveys, as a civilian who would lead these surveys. And that was a pivotal change. This is before the USGS was created. So these were really freelancers, all of these surveyors, and they would have to go out, they would have to lobby Congress for money to fund these surveys, uh, gather up all of their materials in the spring, launch into the surveys in the summer, come back in the fall, write up all of their reports, which were required. Uh, anyone who's ever gotten a grant from the, gov the US government knows you have to write a report at the end of it. And uh, Hayden was no different. Um, and he wrote, you know, 500 page reports. So it was, it was something. Um, he'd have to gather all that data, 
analyze it or hire people to analyze it and then send these reports to Congress and they would be published. And then he would turn right around and start lobbying again for money. So it was really a kind of constant uh, effort, but an effort that involved a lot of different talents, which Hayden actually had. So he really shapes the civilian survey during this period. Uh, he is formative in bringing these surveys to the American imagination by writing about them in popular magazines like Scribner's Monthly. And it's really because of him and, and a couple of the other big surveyors out in the field, John Wesley Powell and Clarence King and George Wheeler, that we get the USGS. So I think that we can sort of see the government starts to understand that this is sort of a hot mess and they need to organize and they need to really direct these surveys a little more aggressively. Um, so there, he has a lot of legacies, like they, he has some scientific legacies where he did, really did find specimens and you know, the exploration of Yellowstone, uh, which, and he conducted surveys in 71, 72 and 73. And so they were learning a lot about the way the earth formed, about volcanic uh, action. Um, they were able to, to more precisely date certain moments uh, in America's geo history. Uh, but he also had this great legacy, not only of the creation of the national park, but in, in creating a kind of move toward popular science where people were really understanding that both the government was behind these efforts uh, and was funding the search for knowledge, which you know becomes a kind of public good and people begin to understand it as a public good. Um, but also just a, a kind of appetite among Americans for reading about science and reading about scientific discovery. So he is, he's a really important figure. And I, I think he would, he would be happy to know, I think that people know about him, but he would also be devastated that there's only one part of Yellowstone Park that's named after him. <laughs> And, and if you go, it's the Hayden Valley, and it sits between uh, Yellowstone Lake uh, and the falls. And it's a beautiful area. It's really beautiful. But there is literally one sign that says Hayden Valley and no explanation. There is no marker that actually tells you who he was. And I think he would be sad about that. Well, that's a pity. That's a total pity. I mean, because he does seem to be like this continuity from, as you say, Lewis and Clark to, to you know, the next generation, but also that change maker as well. So he is really important. And your book does a great job of saying that and expressing it in, in both the way that he led the surveys as well as the surveys themselves. Um, the other big change makers that I thought you might want to talk about and, you know, listeners might be interested in are the artists, the photographers and the painters that are on the survey as well. William Henry Jackson is the photographer and there's landscape uh, artists that come along. It seems to me that they offer an awful lot to the history of Yellowstone. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, this is one of, of Hayden's great talents, too, is that he recognized very early on how important visual images would be uh, for shaping ideas about the West and understanding uh, this part of the nation. And he had uh, met William Henry Jackson um, in the late 1860s. They were both in the West at the time. And then he brought him onto an 1870 survey uh, that he had organized of Southern Wyoming. And you know, photography at this moment, Americans were more comfortable with it because of course there was an explosion of photography during the Civil War. And, you know, we know today because we have Instagram <laughs> and other forms of social media, uh, 
how people manipulate photographs and that photographs are not in fact real life, right? Wait, wait, hold on. No, that's not true, is it? <laughs> Fake news? I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to explode everyone's notions that our Instagram life is not our real life. Um, but in this period, uh, the vast majority of Americans really understood photography as portraying reality. So for Hayden, photography became an important tool because it not only conveyed what was in the landscape so that people had a, a better idea of what a geyser looked like or what a certain mountain range looked like um, and, and just you know landscapes across the West that would really help him in his descriptions. Uh, but they were also proof that these things existed uh, and that he had been there. <laughs> And, and had seen them, uh, and that William Henry Jackson had seen them. And so they really served a, a number of different roles. Um, but Jackson's photographs, you know, it's in this moment, he starts to build a reputation for himself uh, and really become a prominent photographer of the American West and build um, a kind of huge collection of all of these images of the people and, and the landscapes of the region. And those images appear in uh, as illustrations in newspapers later as, as photographs uh, in and of themselves, and then also in all of the survey reports. And, you know, he does in fact shape the views, right? He sets his camera up in important places. He, he is always thinking about aesthetics. And there's some really beautiful images. Um, and he knew that the only disadvantage that photography had uh, in this period was that it was black and white. So you could not see the amazing colors of Yellowstone or any of the other landscapes he was depicting. So that was the job of Thomas Moran. <laughs> and um, Hayden had actually not invited Moran along. Um, he had wanted a landscape painter there. He had tried to get Sanford Gifford to come, but he couldn't. Um, and, but he had had artists on his surveys before. And he also had Henry Elliott, who was more of a sketch artist, uh, someone who would kind of create these um, kind of bigger landscape views and sketches of, of what they were seeing. Uh, it was actually Jay Cook who sent Thomas Moran to join the Hayden survey. Um, Thomas Moran was, was from an immigrant family. He's from Philadelphia. Cook knew him well. He was kind of a rising star. He hadn't really established himself, but he also was extremely ambitious and he had wanted to see the West. He had actually created the woodcut illustrations for an earlier Scribner's monthly piece about Yellowstone from a civilian survey that had gone in in 1870. And so he had a sense of what was out there and thought that, you know, these could be great landscape paintings. And so he joined the survey a little bit later while they were already on the road, kind of moving through uh, Idaho territory and up into Montana. Uh, but he and Jackson became really good friends. Moran often appears in Jackson's photographs as, as a, a figure to show you scale. Um, he also, in, in this incredible moment, he sent Moran out to stand on the structure at Mammoth Hot Springs uh, to be... <laughs> to be a figure in this photograph. And I just kept thinking, what if he had fallen in? What if William Henry Jackson had killed Thomas Moran and we lost this like major painter? Uh, because, you know, Yellowstone was always threatening to do that to kind of, you know, their crust was gonna break and suck you down into, into the infernal region, right? And that was not gonna be good. But 
Uh, the minute the Moran got there, he knew uh, that this was going to be amazing. He he did a lot of watercolor sketches of a lot of the geothermal features, but he was most captivated, uh, as was was William Henry Jackson, with the lower falls. Uh, of the Yellowstone and the amazing canyon um, uh, of which it is a part, uh, mostly because of the color. And so he made a lot of sketches of the of the lower falls, uh, kind of from the, a prospect view from the distance from down the canyon, uh, and knew that this was going to be what he then later called his big picture. And he actually left the survey a little bit early because he was so anxious to get home and get started on this huge painting, which he did complete in the spring of 1872. It's huge. It's like eight by 12 feet. And yes, a gigantic canvas. He started to paint it pretty much right away uh, when he got home. And lots of people came to see it. Um, uh, uh, Richard Watson Gilder, who was an editor of Scrimmers Monthly and a good friend of Moran's, helped him organize an exhibit of the painting in May. And then he actually lobbied Congress, uh, the, the Committee on the Library, uh, which was the, the committee tasked with purchasing books and artworks, uh, which is an interesting kind of component, but this is, you know, the, the origin of the Library of Congress. Um, and they appropriated $10,000 to buy the big picture. And, and this painting is on the cover of the book. And originally I'd had an entire chapter uh, called The Big Picture, which was about Moran painting uh, this amazing canvas. And, and that, that chapter really took me back to my American studies roots. I, I loved it. I loved writing about the creation of that artwork. In the end, I had to kind of condense it down uh, into a kind of five to, five to six page <laughs> um, segment, which was a little painful, Michael. It was a little... <laughs> was a little sad, but uh, that experience is, is still in my memory. But, you know, this was one of the most expensive paintings ever sold. Uh, and it was one of the few original artworks that the government ever bought in this period. Usually they would commission something, um, but, or, you know, it, yeah, mostly they, they commissioned murals and other kinds of paintings. Uh, so they bought this one outright and uh, it originally hung in Congress. Where is it now? Is it still in, in Congress or? Right now it is at, as far as I know, it is still at the Department of the Interior. Um, in, I think, the kind of foyer when you first kind of walk into the interior building. Um, my, I, I actually had a, a great Zoom call with my former professor, Joni Kinsey, and she was like, it can't, it should not be there. That is not a good space for it. It's too small. You have to, the painting is so big that you really have to be able to see it both from a distance and walk up really close to it and see it. Cause it does have amazing tiny details um, that Moran actually put himself and William Henry Jackson and Hayden in the painting, in the foreground uh, and made up a whole nother figure, a, a native man uh, who he's depicting as a guide and kind of pointing out the scene to Hayden. Um, they did not have a native guide. Um, so that was a completely made up piece of that painting, but also a very popular trope uh, in American landscape painting. Uh, so this was an important moment also for the history of art and, and particularly landscape painting in this sort of tradition of the landscape sublime in American history. Sounds like a good excuse to get to the Department of Interior, which I've always been meaning to see, not, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, you know, 
Not now put it I on will. Your yeah, yeah, now put I'm going to on go. your your list. Yeah, when you go when you come to DC next, put that on your list of attractions. Go to the Department of the Interior to see the Moran painting. Although I it may be that they are sending it out for this 150th year because it's the 150th anniversary of that painting also. So, they may be sending it out either on tour or it may go uh to one of the national art museums that the Smithsonian runs. Okay, expect a tweet on that uh, next time I'm in DC. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh, one of the other favorites that I have of this Gilded Age or Reconstruction Gilded Age Progressive Era, whatever you want to uh, call it, um, and we've had conversations about that on the podcast as well, uh, mm. but one of my favorites is uh, William Pigiron Kelly, who features yeah. in here as well, because he's a he's a bundle of contradictions, um, and he's a great character to tell about the railroads, but also to tell about African-American history and Native American history, and so I just wanted to ask you, how can this guy champion African-American rights in one voice and yes. seemingly destroy the whole system of living for Native Americans? Yeah, so so Pig Iron Kelly, he is, he's so fascinating. He's another one of these Philadelphians. Uh, he, he grows up there, uh, has a hard scrabble life uh, early on, and then, you know, does as many of the men in this period do, which is to enter politics through the law, you know, so he he reads the law and then he he starts to get involved in politics. And initially he was a Democrat. Um, but then I think it was the abolition movement that brought him into what then became the Republican Party. And he became, yes, as you're saying, a vocal champion uh, for emancipation, for black rights, for black soldiering during the Civil War. Um, and yet at the same time, he is a champion of railroads, uh, many of which were headquartered in Pennsylvania. So this is how he gets his nickname, Pig Iron Kelly, because uh, he is also, he develops during this period uh, a kind of 
very strident um, protectionism uh, in terms of, of tariffs and, and domestic production. And, and he believes that the only way the South is going to come back into the nation fully is to be fully protected and, and to get back into their production cycle so that you know, we can't be buying any products from, from anywhere else that the South could possibly produce because um, they need that actual help. Uh, but he always fought for subsidies for railroads. You know, these are domestic industries. Uh, there was an accusation that he was involved in the credit mobilier scandal um, and had taken shares. And he admitted that he did buy shares, uh, but he, you know, for the rest of his life, basically argued that it was not untoward, that he was not uh, bribed uh, to do anything. Uh, but he was a champion for the railroads and especially for the Northern Pacific, uh, was a friend of Jay Cook, uh, who was also a, a steadfast, outspoken Republican. Uh, and the interesting thing about the Republican Party in this period, uh, you know, and I think the, the historians, Heather Cox Richardson and Elliot West, have, have written about this extensively as well, you know, they, they are perfectly capable of advocating for the 14th and 15th Amendment rights of Black Southerners and protecting those, supporting Grant's campaign um, to go after the KKK, uh, which is actively trying to undermine those rights in the South during this period. Perfectly capable of advocating for that and then simultaneously cutting Native people out of citizenship rights through the 14th Amendment, which says, you know, um, that every American born and naturalized has citizenship rights, parentheses, except <laughs> Indians untaxed, right? So this means, you know, at this period, the majority of Native people who are not on reservations, not paying taxes to the government are not citizens and have no rights that the federal government is bound to respect, right? So, in their arguments for expansion, in their promotion of domestic production and their kind of larger vision of white settlement in the West, Republicans believe that native removal to reservations is an essential part of that program. And they don't see it as contradictory. They don't see it as uh, any kind of problem to advocate for, for black Southern rights on the one hand and than to advocate for extermination and or removal, um, and certainly cultural extermination also, um, on, on the other hand, in the West. It's an incredible story because it's, I think the time period when Cook is driving his railroads through the North Pacific, uh, you know, the reservation system is a known failure. And of course, the US government's gonna move to an allotment strategy by what, 1877. And, but it, it just seems a remarkable, contrast between the civil rights of one group and the civil rights or lack of civil rights for another group. Actually, the lack of civil rights for both is pretty apparent in this in this stage. Um, okay, well, look, um, moving on to a slightly different topic, but in the same vein, this, you know, this is a 1871, two and three. Those are years before the battles of Little Bighorn, uh, before the, the massacre at Wounded Knee, I mean, how bad are Native American relations with the U.S. government at this stage? And how are Native Americans fighting back against railroad entrepreneurs or tycoons or magnates uh, like Cook? Yeah, I mean, this really is a pivotal moment for uh, Native resistance to U.S. Indian policy and then for U.S. Indian policy and its evolution. Uh, it's in 1871 that Congress inserts a rider into an Indian Appropriations Act 
saying that they will no longer make treaties with native peoples, that they will honor the treaties that have already been negotiated, which, you know, questionable, often not the case. Um, but they did say that. But going forward, they would make peace agreements, but they would not make treaties, which means they were not recognizing native sovereignty. They were not uh, recognizing tribal nations as nations. Uh, so that happens in the exact same session, uh, pretty much in the same week that the Congress gives Ferdinand Hayden $40,000 to go to, to Yellowstone. Um, and from the indigenous perspective, we can see this really ramping up tension and conflicts um, because uh, a lot of federal decisions having to do with Indian policy, but also other decisions like the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act are just bringing a flood of white settlers and railroad workers into native lands during this period. And the, the conflicts there, um, you know, we, we never really say that it's inevitable. I don't think that historians uh, like, I, we're not really comfortable with that notion of inevitability, but it certainly created the conditions for an escalating conflict. And so what we see in the early 1870s in Lakota homelands that extended in this period from the upper Missouri River all the way to the Yellowstone Basin uh, is a growing coalition under the leadership of Sitting Bull and others um, that are really starting to voice opposition to this movement. Um, you know, Sitting Bull, even from the, the early 1860s when white miners were trying to cross Lakota homelands to get to the, the new gold mines of, of Montana, of the, the Northern Rockies, or what would become Montana. You know, Sitting Bull had objected to those. They, the Lakota people had, a, had attacked wagon trains, had turned miners back uh, to try and get them uh, out of their homelands. And Sitting Bull stuck to that line. He never really wavered. I mean, he, like many other indigenous leaders, used a lot of different strategies in dealing with the U.S. government and with the U.S. Army and white settlers in this moment. Um, they used diplomacy. They used surveillance. Uh, sometimes they would negotiate a sort of very short-term peace uh, in order to trade and in order to, to develop a relationship. But for the most part, Sitting Bull in this moment starts to really articulate that the Lakota people are not gonna stand for the Northern Pacific building its track through their lands. They're not gonna stand for the construction of forts on their land uh, and they will fight back. And I, in the book, I, I do argue that this is really the moment that, that the Lakota people start on the road to the Battle of Greasy Grass, Little Bighorn. Um, this is where it begins, where that all begins to escalate uh, because all of these uh, movements through the what they called in, in that period the Great Northwest. Uh, all of these movements of different communities and peoples are bringing everyone into conflict uh, pretty much consistently. Yeah, and it seems like the conflicts, they reverberate throughout the country. So for example, 1873, there is an enormous panic and economic catastrophe that I'm not sure the United States has ever seen anything like it previously or after. It's that it's that catastrophic. Can you tell us what happens and, and how that's related to that part of the United States? Yeah, this this is a really interesting component of the, the 1873 panic and depression that that I don't think we talk about very much. First of all, I don't think we ever 
really talk about it as occurring right in the midst of reconstruction. You know, it's an important moment. Uh, the, the Republicans are losing a little bit of power, which shapes the way that they respond to it. Um, but one of the major components of that, that panic is that Jay Cook, uh, who's been facing a lot of resistance um, and outright warfare, uh, in the Northwest with Sitting Bull and his Hungpapa Lakota um, is for some reason, and, and this is a real question, I think, for a lot of people who study the history of finance and investment banking, um, why Jay Cook was so obsessed with the Northern Pacific and why he just, he refused to abandon it, even when he knew that it was just going sideways. You know, he was not able to sell bonds to finance it. Um, he was not successful doing that in Europe or domestically, uh, and he couldn't finance the road. And so he was loaning the railroad money from his own investment bank, which means he was taking all those funds that other investors had given him, but just plowing it into the Northern Pacific and getting no return. And, you know, the, the economy, the world economy, and then also the national economy were, were getting a little bit volatile in 1873. You see a lot of kind of mini panics happening. So it was not all due to Jay Cook, but by the fall of 73, he had loaned the Northern Pacific almost $2 million. And when his investors came calling for it, uh, he didn't have the money. And Jay Cook and company had to close their doors and this really, you know, there had been a couple company failures and some railroad failures in the weeks before, but it was really the closure of Jay Cook and Company that sparked the entire panic and depression. And, you know, even within two to three weeks, just massive failures across the country of a lot of banks, a lot of railroads, and, and plunged the country into a depression that they didn't really come out of until the end of reconstruction, really. Um, and it it did, it as, as you said, it reverberated across the country. Uh, and it was because that Cook had become so obsessed with the Northern Pacific as this project that would be this huge achievement for him uh, that was also a patriotic endeavor. It was, it was supposed to be the centennial line. It was supposed to be finished in 76 to celebrate the country's 100th anniversary. He wanted to kind of reclaim the glory that he felt he had achieved in the Civil War, selling bonds for the Union War effort. And, and it was just a really bad decision. I mean, railroads were bad investments anyway, and no one could believe, a lot of Cook's friends couldn't believe that he had taken this on, you know, the financing of that road anyway. They're like, what are you doing? There's so many better investments to be making right now. But he just, he got into it and he was really tenacious and he wouldn't let go. And and it it brought him financial ruin and it plunged the nation uh, into panic and depression. Yeah, it's such an important story and I'm glad that it's in there. It just, it does a... It does a real service to understanding how the West is important, just not not to the local area, but to the rest of the country. And uh, and and I think that thing that you had mentioned before about inevitability is really interesting as well. So let me pick up on that because there's this sense in the book that nothing is destined to happen. You know that like I don't know is it fair to say that that's part of the excitement about the American West in this period that anything is possible and nothing is inevitable, whether that's, you know, white expansion or indigenous removal or railroad growth. But I mean, it all seems rather hard fought, every bit of it. Yeah, yeah, every step of the way. And, and I think this is hard 
for us, I think we tend to look at this moment and maybe the founding of, of Yellowstone as the, the world's first national park as inevitable. But Hayden did not go to Yellowstone with that idea in mind. Actually, he didn't even mention it, right? I mean, his purpose there was to explore it fully or as fully as possible for science uh, and to really evaluate its possibilities for development. I mean, that was really the whole point of all of these surveys was to figure out what was there. Could anyone ranch it? Could anyone farm it? Could they mine it? Uh, and so he was, his explicit instructions from the Department of Interior were to do that, to uh, establish its potential usefulness. And it wasn't until he got back and he received this note uh, from uh, Nettleton, uh, who was, um, A.B. Nettleton, who was the PR manager for the Northern Pacific on behalf of Jay Cook, who, who comes out with this kind of crazy thing that Pig Iron Kelly had suggested that perhaps uh, Yellowstone should be a national park and that in his write-up for the government, maybe he should suggest that. Um, yeah. Um, as far as I could tell before this moment, Hayden had zero kind of understanding of the park as a potential preserved space, hadn't really thought about the possibilities of that. Once Nettleton suggested it though, he immediately understood how important it would be for science uh, and how important it would be to take that land out of development uh, and really keep it for the people. And he, he began to lobby for the Yellowstone Act almost right away. And so I think in that moment, you can see how one person or one like tiny group of people can really change a whole history, right? And, and that to me really is what flies in the face of this idea of inevitability. I mean, I think whenever we talk about things that are inevitable, it seems like all of these, this huge machinery, you know, the government machinery, the scientific machinery, all of it is moving toward a one specific purpose. But I think when we do our work as historians and we really see these moments and understand how often they just hinge on a single action that could, you know, I mean, what if Nettleton had never suggested it? What if whatever conversation happened between Pigard and Kelly and Jay Cook never happened? And, you know, Hayden just turned in his report, said that this place was amazing. You know, the, the local entrepreneurs were successful in fi filing their preemption claims. I mean, we might have Yellowstone or some part of it as a national park now, but who knows? Um, you know, so that part I think is really, really interesting. Um, and, and it does kind of um, give us a sense that nothing is inevitable, nothing is destined. Uh, even though, you know, people like to talk, obviously manifest destiny, right? Uh, there's a whole ethic that is promoted that, that white Americans are supposed to be in the West. They're supposed to be doing this and it will become glorious. Uh, but there's so many decisions that are made and so many actions that people take on the ground that really fly in the face of that. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And um, I think that brings up the question about how we write history as well. And I know that you've done some wonderful interviews uh, lately, especially with the wonderful podcast, uh, Drafting the Past. So massive shout out to that podcast. Uh, I, you know, so I think one of the things that listeners might be interested in is if you could share a few tips on how to write narrative history with that ethic in mind, that sort of being honest with the past, having a degree of empathy and not, you know, coming in with any sense of inevitability. 
Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I made the turn to narrative history after my second book. So I wrote, um, Saving Yellowstone is my fourth book. So the first two, the, the first one was my dissertation, uh, Trembling Earth, which is a cultural history of the Okefenokee Swamp. And then the second book was Ruined Nation, Destruction and the American Civil War. And both of those books are academic books in the sense that they are argument driven. You know, they have the classic academic structure of introduction, thematic chapter, 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 conclusion. Um, and and they also have a similar methodology, which was the kind of gathering of evidence, right? So for Ruin Nation, I had you know, a chapter on cities. So I divided that up. I had a couple of different cities and I just went and gathered all of the evidence I could possibly gather from visual culture, manuscript sources, newspapers, military documents about the destruction of this particular location. And then wrote that section of the chapter arguing um, for the major themes and the destruction of that place. When I turned to writing Three Cornered War, I knew that I wanted it to be uh, narrative history in the sense that it was telling a story. And I think this is one of the major differences between academic writing and, and that, that sort of academic argument mode and narrative writing. Narrative always has argument, right? Um, there's always arguments embedded. And in fact, in the Drafting the Past podcast that, that Kate Carpenter recently launched, um, Bathsheba DeMuth said something really great, uh, which, is, and which is totally true, that narrative itself is an argument. Who you choose to highlight in the narrative, whose stories you tell is itself an argument, right? Um, and, and that is absolutely true. And what I wanted to do with Three Cornered War was to really put readers on the ground with people who were representing a range of different communities. So there were actually a lot of them, there were nine. There were way more than Saving Yellowstone. Saving Yellowstone has you know, the three major protagonists with a couple of, of supporting players. Um, but I was interweaving their stories using uh, a tactic that historians don't use, but fiction writers use, uh, which is multi-perspective narrative. Um, so there's, there's the, the turn to narrative, which is argumentative, but it is about a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So I would say if uh, there are historians out there who are interested in writing narrative history, think about your topic and think about it like, is it a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end? Uh, and who are the people in it? Um, because I think so often in academic writing, and I did this in my first two books too, you know, people show up and we name them, uh, but mostly it's their words that matter and their, their actions that matter. And we don't really delve into their biography, into their background, into their motives, uh, into any kind of emotional uh, valence of their lives. Um, we just sort of, you know, again, depict or present their words or actions as evidence, right? Uh, not as a component of their character or as a source of action or conversation. And so um, think about whether you have an actual story there and sometimes books don't. I mean, the, you know, not every book is conducive to narrative history and doesn't have to be, right? Um, but does it have a beginning, a middle and an end? Are there people in it who readers will come to understand as important figures, as, as people who are shaping action uh, in kind of big ways? Um, and how much can we learn about them and how can we really put readers 
again, like on the ground with these people moving through moving through space and time, because we like to, to read about people, right? I mean, ideas are great and arguments are great and those are very fulfilling and we want those too, but we want them in the form of, of story and in the, and coming to know actual people. Um, and the one other um, kind of piece of advice that I would give is that to, to start thinking differently about methodology, to start thinking differently about evidence and how you use it. So what I do now is that I, I'm not so concerned about compiling a huge amount of evidence to prove an argument, right? Um, what I want to see is, is writing in newspapers or manuscripts or, you know, and, and also visual culture and material culture that allows me to create plot and action and to take those kind of great quotes that you find and see if they're actual dialogue. Is it someone who's actually saying something to someone else or are they writing something in a diary? And instead of just using that, those words as evidence, we, we use it as, as action so that someone is physically sitting down in a room and writing in their diary, right? That this becomes an action that we can describe. Um, and I will just say just one other piece of advice. I mean, I'm, I, what, connects all of my books together as an interest in these kind of weird, strange landscapes. Um, I, am, I am at my core, a landscape historian. <clears throat> and uh, so I am very invested in creating a sense of place for readers. Because I think this is also a trap in academic writing. Everything seems to happen kind of disconnected from actual context, actual physical space, you know, life on the ground. Um, and now I pay a lot of attention to where things are happening, um, details. If someone's in a room, meeting in a room, where are they? What does the furniture look like? Is that going to be important to the description that I make? How can we use color, um, you know, red and blue and white, black? Like, how can we use that to uh, really create a vivid sense of place? Um, like, for example, I was just looking through some, some photographs that I had because I was... Um, thinking about talking about the passage of the Yellowstone Act. And I realized that when I was writing the chapter on the passage of the act, I had pulled all of these maps of Congress and also the, the, the actual Senate and House chambers to see where people would have been talking, where they might've been seated in the room when they got up to make these speeches on behalf of, of the Yellowstone Act, or they started to debate about it. And that's just something I never would have considered before. In, in my writing life. It didn't matter where they, I mean, we know they're in the, the Capitol building and that's all we need to know, right? But if you're gonna put people down in that, in that house chamber, you need to know how it's organized, where people are sitting, you know, what the action in the room would be like. Um, so those are the kind of major differences between, and the challenges too, to shifting from the academic argumentative mode to the narrative mode. Your book is exceptional at doing that too. There's lots of really great examples that I could, you know, uh, tell tell listeners about, like you know, the small pinpricks of light. You know, I mean, you really do a great job of putting us into the shoes of the characters, into the place, whether it's at west or whether it's you know back east. Um, that's what the book does really well. Okay, well, 
I, I'd love to talk more about about the book. And I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan, and I, and I think people should read it, even if just to to understand how we can become better writers. Uh, but if you have any interest in the Gilded Age, this is also an exceptional read in terms of citizenship rights, in terms of uh, environmental history. So, Megan, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.